Welcome to Extraordinary People, the podcast that highlights people who inspire others, have made significant contributions to the world, or who have overcome adversity. This show is hosted by Shirley Bogtel, author, educator, wife, mother, and grandparent. Learn more and subscribe today at ShirleyWachtel.com. And now, here's my grandma, Shirley Wachtel. Hello, and welcome to this edition of Extraordinary People. Today, we have Corey Kaplan, who is the co-founder of Dolomite, a decentralized cryptocurrency exchange, DEX for short. Prior to co-founding Dolomite, Corey graduated from Lehigh University with a degree in computer science and business. Corey is passionate about the democratization of financial assets and self-sovereignty that cryptocurrencies and digital assets can offer the world. He has been working in the industry full-time since 2017, contributing to open source repositories, building Dolomite, and pushing the boundaries beyond what's possible with digital assets. Corey, welcome. Thank you for having me today. Well, I, I've been really looking forward uh, to this interview because um, it's a subject there are many subjects I don't know a lot about, but I certainly uh, don't know about this subject. So you're going to educate us today about what you do and, um, you know, why, why it might be important for us to learn about this form of currency. And, um, you know, as somebody who majored in English and uh, whose least subject, favorite subject was economics and math, um, I've I, I think I, I need a lot of education on this particular subject. So, um, first of all, can you tell us what is Bitcoin and how does it work? So, Bitcoin in and of itself is a digital form of money, which uh, if we take a look at this money as a concept, you're able to take it out of your pocket in the real world, hand it to someone and exchange value. And Bitcoin exists as a method of doing that in a purely online sense. And what might help in breaking down what Bitcoin is or how it works is maybe comparing it to more of its counterparts or what it tried to make better that didn't exist beforehand. If you look at how you would send money over the internet or over the computer, it typically involves some financial intermediary of some kind like Wells Fargo Bank, PayPal, Venmo, and other similar services. And Bitcoin was the first iteration of a digital form of money where you could transfer value to someone without having to use a company or centralized intermediary in the middle of that financial transaction. So it's a way to break down the barrier uh, that would sometimes exist between sending money overseas or uh, sending transactions that you want to keep private from people that would otherwise want to censor the transactions or watch them. And the way that Bitcoin works, though, is it uses... Uh, something called a blockchain or a decentralized ledger for keeping track of all these transactions. Uh, this ledger can just be looked at as a very simple Google spreadsheet or Excel document where you just keep track of whose balance is who. And when you want to submit a transaction to send money, from example, myself to you, Shirley, you would just see a deduction and balance from you know 10 Bitcoin that I previously had to now I have nine, and then Shirley gets one. 
and she has now one on this balance sheet. It's a pretty simple concept from a 30,000 foot view that a lot of people like to muddy the water with, with technical jargon, but in its most simple form, it's really just a way to send and receive value uh, over the internet without anyone getting in the way of that transaction. Okay. So um, because it's really an online service, um, can that be subject to, does it, is it vulnerable to hacking or some kind of um, interference more so than the way we normally exchange money? So I, I love this question a lot because there's actually different ways of looking at the concept of something being hacked. When people look at something being hacked, sometimes they misconstrue things and they look at you know, the Bitcoin network being hacked versus an individual being hacked. Uh, so the way that you actually interact with this money is by using a very, very long password to protect your account. And if that password is ever compromised, then you yourself could be hacked. Your balance could be quote unquote hacked. But the network overall has never been compromised, which is a testament to the overall security that this blockchain technology has to offer us. And since Bitcoin's initial inception back in 2009, 2010, the network has never been hacked once. And as the network grows more and more in value, which happens with the ballooning of price that we commonly see that news articles talk about, there's more and more incentive then to try to find ways to exploit this network because it's worth more and more as the price goes up. And we're seeing that its resiliency to overall hacks on a network level has been something to marvel at. That is surprising. So how, how would something like Bitcoin make any money for someone? Like if you are an investor. So if you're an investor and you want to be able to speculate on the value of Bitcoin in the future, uh, it's as simple as just buying it and holding it. Uh, some people take the path of going onto a platform like Coinbase to purchase their Bitcoin and keep it on there. But the true uh, revolution that that Bitcoin itself has to offer is being able to purchase that Bitcoin and then holding it in your own wallet, which means that you would be the one that's custodying or holding onto that Bitcoin, which in and of itself is a paradigm shift when you look at how you typically hold financial instruments nowadays. If you're holding a stock, for example, then you usually would use a brokerage account to custody the stock for you while you're holding onto it and waiting for it to go up or down in value. But with Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, you're able to relieve the brokerage of its duties and instead custody the asset by yourself. Okay. And if I wanted to get into this, you know, tell me what the process is and tell me if also I would be able to maybe convert some of this Bitcoin to cash. Absolutely. So if you wanted to get started with investing in Bitcoin, for example, you'd want to go to a platform like Coinbase that's regulated within the US and has direct banking connections that allows you to send money from your bank account at Capital One, Bank of America, JP Morgan Chase, et cetera, to Coinbase. And what they do is they actually set up a bank account for you underneath your name that's FDIC insured while you're holding your cash balance on there. And at any point in time, while you have a cash balance on Coinbase's system, 
you're able to purchase Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies. And upon doing so, you hold a Bitcoin balance on their platform, or as I mentioned earlier, you can withdraw that Bitcoin to your own wallet. And then at a later point in time, you basically do that process in reverse of instead selling the Bitcoin back to a cash balance on Coinbase. And if you want to withdraw that to cash at your bank account, you use that banking connection you had already established to withdraw it then back to your bank. Mm-hmm. And is there a minimum amount of um, cash that I would need to start with if I wanted to get involved in this? I don't know what Coinbase's particular minimums are, but it should be substantially low, like around the $10-ish mark just to get started and, and try it out. And what about the banks? Are they crypto friendly for the most part, or are we still working on that? I would say we're definitely still working on that. When it comes to banks being crypto friendly, even, even that question has plenty of nuance to it because banks themselves have tried to shy away from it because it's a really large hurdle to be able to train their personnel on it and become adequately equipped to deal with the complexities of crypto in its many forms. So to the extent that you might use a Coinbase account and then wire money or ACH money or use other means of transfer back and forth between your Coinbase uh, account and your Coinbase setup bank account and your more native bank account, like you have it, your Wells Fargo's of the world, uh, that's non-problematic. And from their perspective, all they see is an incoming or outgoing transfer. They don't really care or have to know the details of, you know, it's going to Coinbase for this purpose. So there isn't necessarily the same concern with that. Now, on the other hand, if you're trying to use credit cards or other forms of debt instruments to purchase your crypto, these credit card agencies and these other uh, financial institutions that issue these debt instruments will want to put their foot down and stamp their feet saying that we don't want you to do that because a lot of people have caught themselves on the wrong side of that trade where they find themselves in massive debt, purchasing an asset that can go down in value and they don't have the ability to repay then. You mentioned that there are certain protections that are better if we do get into this cryptocurrency. You don't have that middleman like Wells Fargo. Um, if you were selling somebody on the idea of getting Bitcoin, and and with that, is there is there someone that you would say it would be a good a better candidate than others, maybe maybe if you're a senior, well-established person versus somebody just starting out. I mean, what would be your sales pitch for Bitcoin? I think it depends on who that persona is and where they are in the world, like geographically speaking. Uh, I think one of the strongest value propositions that Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies offer is if we wind the clocks back to the 1940s during World War II and the Holocaust, you think about all the people, in particular the Jewish people that were displaced by the Nazis, unfortunately, lost their wealth, lost their property, uh, lost their freedom. If you were fortunate enough to be able to survive such an ordeal, you would come back to post-World War II Germany to where your home was and someone else would be living there. Your money would be all gone because the banks have seized it at that point your assets would have been taken. And Bitcoin is the number one sales pitch for fixing that problem. Provided that you remember your password while you were in the concentration camp or otherwise displaced, you could come back and have the entirety of your wealth completely intact. No one would have been able to take it from you. 
And that is a huge, huge benefit. Primarily one of the main ones actually that got me into crypto in the first place. If you have any sense of distrust for the government, it is the solution. It is, it is your escape hatch from any kind of tyrannical regime. Now, fortunately, we live in the United States where that's not a problem. Although some people were worried about that happening during Trump's presidency. And you know, there are some worries of a slippery slope under some circumstances. Right. You know, there is a very strong sales pitch for Bitcoin in that way. But I do want to disclaim saying that you only have that luxury if you are holding that Bitcoin in your wallet. If you're holding it on Coinbase, Coinbase is uh, subject to the rules and regulations of the US government that could subpoena Coinbase to ask for Shirley Wachtel's balance or want to seize it from you if they think that you're a criminal. Sometimes criminal can take on different forms, like just thinking that you are Jewish, for example, if we're going back to 1940s. But if you are holding it in your own wallet, there is nothing that anyone can do to take that from you except take your password away from you. And that is a powerful thing. Now, if we're looking at just more simple use cases, I can give you a really simple one that doesn't involve such a polarizing and otherwise very scary situation happening. But you actually have a close family friend of ours that was purchasing medicine through a pharmacy in Canada for himself because the medicine was way cheaper if he purchased it from uh, the Canadian medical companies. And his insurance had caught wind of it from actually looking at uh, him not purchasing it anymore from his local pharmacy, basically asked what happened because it was an ongoing condition. And he explained to them he, would, he found it cheaper elsewhere. So they tried cutting off his insurance and other basically evil things because they did not like that he was purchasing the medicine elsewhere that could otherwise mess up his like, future insurance claims because they didn't want to endorse the medicine that he was purchasing overseas or not overseas, but you know across the border. So he actually started using Bitcoin then to purchase that medicine in a way that would otherwise hide the financial transactions in case this would escalate further and he, he would have to show credit card statements or other kinds of transactional information. And I myself, one of the ways I got into Bitcoin was back in college. I was building a game modding software, which is a way to modify games to make them work in your favor. In, in other words, cheat, but in a way that used hacking and other ingenuity to progress your progress through the game. And I would actually sell this software online through PayPal, PayPal caught wind of this and didn't like the kind of business that I was running and decided to shut me down. And my foray into Bitcoin was actually accepting it for payment as a way to subvert not having to deal with PayPal getting in my way. So I would argue that game modding is more of a simple and, and not necessarily nefarious activity. But sure enough, PayPal was able to serve as judge, jury, and executioner of that decision. And I didn't think that was fair. Mm -hmm. That's certainly a strong argument uh, that I had never considered. I don't know if you know the answer to this question, but uh, what percentage of the population, let's say world population, would you say uses cryptocurrency? Even that question, like using cryptocurrency takes on more than one form. Because if you look at the simple example like I described before with you of going onto a platform like Coinbase and purchasing it. I think that you'd see maybe like 10% of the world population, but I'm not uh, 100% sure on that figure that might have purchased it or have some way of holding it at some point throughout the uh, 
entirety of his existence. You know, naturally during cycles where the price goes down, people tend to leave the industry or sell it off and walk away from it. But um, if you look at taking that a step further of how many people then not just own it, but also self-custody it in their own wallet, I think you're looking at a much lower figure, dramatically lower, around the 1% to 2% mark, maybe even lower than that. All of this sounds very appealing, um, but I'm going to play the devil's advocate. So in the past, we've heard of bankruptcy of FTX. So I would, I would like to know your thoughts on that and how viable do we see Bitcoin in our future? Yeah. So looking at this FTX situation in particular, that's actually more of a situation revolving around fraud. And it happens to happen in the crypto industry, but it could have happened elsewhere. Could have happened in finance, could have happened with a, a brokerage that's holding uh, stocks for you. Could have happened with other kinds of companies as well. And it just happened to involve crypto today. Uh, what happened with FTX is a really unfortunate situation of actually a strong example of why centralization could potentially be evil and things happen behind closed doors that you're not able to otherwise see. When we look at the example we keep going back to of Coinbase holding the Bitcoin for you and you're not holding it yourself in your own wallet, you're placing a strong degree of trust in Coinbase to hold those assets for you and never do anything with them. And some venues like to operate like a bank where they earn their money from taking your assets that they're holding for you and lending them out to earn interest. And if that goes wrong or sideways, it can lead to catastrophe. And that's exactly what we saw happen with FTX. But with one major point that's important to illustrate, FTX's terms of service, which is a binding agreement between FTX and its customers, said explicitly that they do not loan out customer funds. Assets are held in the platform and backed one-to-one. And that's why this situation caught so many people off guard and why it was such a catastrophe, because no one expected them to, behind the scenes, actually be taking those assets and essentially rehypothecate them to other, other players in order to earn extra money. And that's why I look at the FTX situation as more of a fraud than a potential misstep in business decision-making that led to you know, an unfortunate bankruptcy. There was some criminal activity there. So do you think that this has had real reverberations on the crypto world? And what do you see for the future? I think over the short term, there's definitely going to be reverberations from this. And it's shaken a lot of trust, unfortunately. But the trust that's been shaken, it's important to distinguish between whose trust has been broken and whose hasn't. I mean, I'm on the podcast with you now talking about this and clearly still sounds enthusiastic about the industry. And there's a reason why. You know, FTX is not analogous to the benefits that crypto actually offers. Just because FTX went under doesn't take away from the amazing things that crypto is capable of, like the things we've already discussed together. And the unfortunate side effect of FTX is a lot of people will forget the benefits that crypto has to offer you. And instead, we'll focus on one bad actor potentially spoiling the, the bunch for everyone else. So it's going to take time for people to potentially forget what happened. It's going to take time for new trust to be established and for uh, potential regulation to come in that would root out problems like this from happening again. 
Yeah, I mean, it's just like any new type of industry. You have to kind of go over some of the potholes before you can get it straight again. So um, I guess that's what's happening here. Um, I'm going to switch gears a little bit now to another issue that's related. And that's something that you told me about last year, which I had no knowledge about. And maybe our listeners don't either. Tell us all about the NFT. What is that? So NFTs have this horrible acronym of non-fungible token, which a lot of people just hear that and don't know what it is. You know, crypto lends itself to not just be able to send money over the internet, but also send uh, non-fungible assets, hence the acronym. So the example of this is if I hand you a dollar right now, uh, a dollar bill, you put it into your pocket, I turned around, and then I turned back around again. And I said, hand me that dollar bill back. Provided that I didn't mark the bill with a Sharpie or something like that, I would have no way of knowing if you hand me the same dollar bill back or not. And that's a really important aspect of currency that we underappreciate. Because if you had a way of knowing where your money came from through and through, it might be unappealing to you to receive certain money from certain individuals. So that fungibility of money, which is where that word comes from, is an important characteristic. Now, this blockchain technology lent itself to not just create fungible forms of currency, but also non-fungible assets. So you could take more unique things like art, for example, and represent them online or in this online world and be able to transfer them between people and be able to keep track of the original copy with ease. And that's where this non-fungibility aspect comes from. So my, my profile picture that I use for representing myself online for the sake of my business and my online identity is something called a CryptoPunk, which has the lore of being one of the first NFTs ever created, arguably the first one that was popularized or the first uh, set that was popularized. And CryptoPunks themselves are a 10,000 art piece set of different 24 pixel by 24 pixel uh, CryptoPunk individuals that have varying looks races, ethnicities, and even types behind them. Like there's a couple aliens, there's a couple apes, there's zombies, and there's of course humans. So there's uh, some very interesting things that have been lent to the industry from uh, CryptoPunks actually popularizing the concept of an NFT. And some celebrities have popularized these NFTs as well. Yeah, that's definitely been the case. We've seen plenty of celebrities get behind other NFT collections, not just CryptoPunks. And I think part of the lore behind it is that as we become increasingly digital, people spend more and more time on the computer and want to represent themselves online. And if you look at the real world today, like what the things that people purchase in order to potentially flex their, their wealth or be able to just, in, or purchase something that, that's expensive that they enjoy, I think Rolex watches and nice watches are a great example, uh, at least for uh, a lot of men that enjoy purchasing them. And these NFTs in particular have become like a sort of digital Rolex for people to be able to flex their wealth online, where it doesn't make sense for them to go out and purchase a Rolex because they just you know, don't go out or it doesn't really give them the same kind of broad appeal. And that's the more wealth use case that we've seen with celebrities getting behind them. Because not only that, when you see celebrity wearing a Rolex or in this case, rocking a CryptoPunk or some other NFT collection, it gives it some weight behind it of other people endorsing it. 
But I think the more interesting use case from it, which is actually how I've been using it, is it's actually a form of advertising in a lot of ways. So I'm able to purchase this NFT in particular, use it to rep represent myself. And CryptoPunks have a certain, I wouldn't say trend behind them, but they have a certain uh, air behind them of not just confidence, but of signaling of who you are in the industry. Status. Yeah. The status in this case is that you were early on in the crypto industry, and it's almost a way for you to prove that by either, of course, having extreme wealth if you were lucky enough to purchase one at a you know, substantial price or from being early enough in the industry where you're able to purchase one before the prices went haywire with them. And for me, it's a way of advertising in that regard so that there's a sense of legitimacy about you when you make a cold connection to someone. Or for example, there's been other people in the industry that have crypto punks that I've wanted to make connections with through for my business. And just starting off on common footing, like the same way that you might relate to someone saying, oh, you have a kid. Well, I have a kid too. You can say, oh, we're part of the same CryptoPunk family. And that becomes a way for you to enter yourself for some business opportunity. But the neat thing with it, when you look at it as a form of advertising that way, is it's not just an expense that you spend and then it's gone. Of course, it will fluctuate in value, but there's resale value to it, where if I wanted to, eventually I could resell it and potentially get my money back and more, my money back or less. But you don't need to necessarily look at it like it's a lost expense through and through. So yeah, they, you actually answered another one of my questions. So if, if I had one of these and I wanted to sell it, and I might make a nice profit from it. There, there's definitely potential for that. That was part of the decision-making process with wanting to get a CryptoPunk myself back when I had gotten it. So if Average Joe decided that he or she wanted this as some uh, you know, symbol of their status. What would it go for? CryptoPunks today, I, would, I think they go for around like eighty dollars to $100,000 for the cheapest ones. And wow. they scale up to millions of dollars, depending on how rare yours is. And the price has been fluctuating wildly for them. I mean, they've been on the more stable side as of recently in terms of staying within a tighter range. But I would say around... Uh, October of 2021 or so, September, the cheapest ones were selling for over half a million dollars each. So it's very interesting to see like this new asset class emerge, similar to how crypto had emerged, but you know, this is a subset of crypto now emerging as a new asset class. I think that there's a lot of interesting things that will happen with uh, NFTs in the future, uh, in particular, the ones that have cultural significance behind them, like CryptoPunks are being one of the first collections or potentially other collections that have been created then after. I think that we'll start to see some of these start to show up in museums. And as a matter of fact, I know that there's already a couple of museums that have purchased them just to put them on display for their upcoming historical significance, which is weird to say upcoming historical significance because obviously you just need to have, have time do its thing of just time pass before they become more and more important that way. But we're already starting to see that happen considering their about five years old now. There must be certainly some people who are really of a top economic status who have more than one of these then. Yeah, there definitely are. And there's also, and this is part of the interesting thing with CryptoPunks in particular, they were given away for free back in 2017. That's how they were initially created and distributed. So there's plenty of people that own, that own more than one today that were fortunate enough to just go ahead and claim 10 of them because they thought they were cool and then just stopped. Like one person, if they wanted to, could have just claimed all of them, but just 
that's just not how people operate in the industry. They want, they got the number that they were happy with, or they got the one that made them happy because it looked cool and then just walked away from it. And there's a lot of a uh, common thread here with how the industry operates where people that have achieved massive wealth from it or established themselves as being early on, a lot of the initial distribution of the top projects or top things were done for free and in a much more altruistic way than we might otherwise be used to seeing. I think you've explained all of this very clearly. There's one aspect of what you're talking about that I'm really curious about, and that's your personal journey. You mentioned, you know, you went to Lehigh and then you pursued something new with gaming. So now you have your own company. And uh, tell us a little bit about how you got interested in this, maybe elaborate a little bit more on that aspect and where you are today. Sure. So my entry into into the industry when it comes to actually forming a business was a bit accidental by nature. And uh, it's a testament to some of the earlier benefits of crypto that got me excited that brought me here today. So back in 2017, I had some more interest in trading and investing in cryptocurrencies beyond the accepting a payment uh, use case I talked about earlier with Bitcoin and saw that there were plenty of exchanges, not in the US, of course, but elsewhere that were declaring bankruptcy, stealing users' money, other things that are very analogous to what happened to FTX recently, but just on a much smaller scale. And I, at that point, knew the technological possibilities of cryptocurrencies, Ethereum, smart contracts, and all these wacky things. And thought there must be a better solution than users, whether they were around the world or in the United States, wherever, otherwise relinquishing control of their funds, but in order to trade them. So in my introduction, when I talked about contributing to open source repositories, which a lot of people not, might not necessarily know what that means, uh, my entry for the industry in a, in a working capacity or a professional capacity was looking at projects that are building things, in this case, decentralized exchanges, which are the solution to problems like FTX had caused, they publish their code open for anyone to see it and contribute to it. And that's what open source means. I was able to find projects like those that were building what I thought cool things and just put my best foot forward with my business partner and started working on them and adding to it, contributing to it for free, just because I wanted to see these projects flourish. We wanted to be able to use them ourselves because they weren't ready yet for uh, massive consumption. So we put our best foot forward that way and started building with these teams. Like I said, not accepting payment for it, just wanted to do it ourselves just so we could use it. And that spiraled into an investment opportunity where one of the projects in particular was very well capitalized and saw that we were one of the only people in the world that were contributing to their project in a very meaningful way. And they had actually reached out to us and said, if you could hand us a business plan that seems sound and would utilize our technology, we'd love for you guys to continue building on top of us and we'd write you your first investment check. So we put our uh, hats together and wrote what we thought was a solid business plan at the time. And that's actually how Dolomite came to fruition then. And finally, what do you see in the future for Bitcoin and, you know, for yourself personally as an entrepreneur? For Bitcoin, I think there'll be wider acceptance and use of it over time. It's going to 
permeate more of our financial ecosystem, whether that means Bitcoin itself or the technology that it enables, which is the underlying blockchain piece to it. And I think that we're going to start to see more diversification into Bitcoin as a digital gold that you're able to more easily transport around or otherwise utilize, whether you're in an area of persecution or in an area that you want to diversify away from the common financial instruments that people are purchasing nowadays. You want to look for something different. Uh, and as for myself, you know, we're just on this mission to make trading itself as safe and as secure as possible so that people that want to participate in this on-chain world or don't have access to services like Coinbase because Coinbase only services so many regions, uh, platforms like Dolomite can serve as a safe haven for them to trade assets in a way where you don't need to trust the exchange operators in order to do so. Corey, this has really been a fascinating discussion, and I must say you're quite a good teacher because I learned a lot today. I want to wish you continued success, and um, I hope to talk to you soon. Well, thank you very much. It was my pleasure being here. Thanks for listening to this episode of Extraordinary People. To learn more about Shirley Wachtel and to subscribe to the show, head to ShirleyWachtel.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Extraordinary People.